A new report from the General Services Administration's Inspector General did not have many nice things to say about its multiple award schedules transactional data reporting pilot, first criticizing the agency for not using the data, then calling the data itself unusable. This left at least one contracting expert confused on the IG's true intent here. For more, we turn to Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. This is just the latest salvo from the GSA Office of the Inspector General. Uh, taking issue with GSA's transactional data reporting system. The best way to look at transactional data reporting, as you mentioned, TDR, is that it's an alternate path for companies seeking to obtain a GSA multiple award schedule contract. And this path uses market research to determine price reasonableness. Uh, And yet we have the IG coming out with this latest report saying, that GSA didn't rely on post-contract generated data and that the post-contract generated data that does exist isn't very good. So I think that the IG kind of missed the point. Market research is supposed to be the main way that prices are obtained on in the TDR path. And while post-award sales data to the government may be somewhat useful, that's not really what the intention was in terms of using that information to determine schedule price reasonableness. And I also, I'm not really sure which part of this the IG is more aggravated with is the fact that GSA didn't use the data or that the data itself wasn't very good. So would they have been happier? For example, if GSA schedules people had used bad data, uh, that seems to be what the report suggests. So I just think it's a little confusing. And so what are you looking for? I know that you laid out uh, some of that uh, right there, but could the IG actually help maybe make some needed improvements to TDR information or, you know, is is there room to improve there from what you've seen? I'm sure there's room to improve in terms of the type of data that's collected and, and how it's used. GSA, though, for one part, is already starting to stand up its price comparison database, which has always been the long-term objective of the TDR program. That's going to be a tool that helps federal customers decide whether or not they're getting a good deal on a schedule offer. Those are the prices that are actually paid at the task order level, regardless of what the contract level pricing might be. So GSA is standing that tool up. Another thing that they've done in terms of uh, ensuring that contract level pricing is good is that they've developed their own, it's called a 4P pricing tool, and GSA has developed that tool. So it's not as if they need to rely on TDR data to determine price reasonableness. They don't. The people that run the schedules program have gone ahead and created their own mechanisms, their own ways to assess price reasonableness. I'm hoping that the IG will look at those. Frankly, Eric, I think one of the things that I'm a little concerned about is the consistent stridency with which the IG has taken issue with the TDR approach may have blinded their ability to be impartial and to look at areas where they could actually make some positive comments. And is it the case of where more information is always good, even if it's not necessarily the most up-to-date information? I mean, will it help, you know, regardless of how badly the IG thinks the information is? Well, I think you really hit something there, Eric. The idea about, you know, it's one thing to collect the information. It's another to be able to use it. So 
Uh, at some point, are we more interested in just gathering an ever-ending stream of information, or are we actually going to set up systems and protocols that enable us to use the information we already have? So it's not just that you know we, we get data, it's how do we use that data. And then I think the larger part of that kind of discussion is what role does the data analysis play in helping determine price reasonableness? Certainly good data analysis is going to be a key part of that equation, but I never want to get to the point where we use data as its own self-executing reason for existing. And what I mean by that is data and data analysis is a tool, a tool that contracting officers can use in their process of determining price reasonableness. The tool should not become the self-executing end-all, be-all. It should just be a tool. And ultimately, the contracting officer should be able to use his or her own judgment in awarding contract. Got it. All right. And so that's talking about the GSA's role in federal contracting. But there's another agency that is taking a bigger stand in the federal contracting process. And it may not be one that folks immediately think of when they think of federal contracting, is it? No, Eric, it's not. And here we're talking about the Environmental Protection Agency and the growing role that EPA rules play and will play in the lives of government contractors. I'm telling my clients, the people that read my newsletter, that uh, they should definitely be adding the EPA to the list of government agencies that they look at in terms of those that can add burdens and requirements to your government contracts. And why is that? Well, we've already seen the EPA come out with a proposed greenhouse gas rule. And even though that rule isn't finalized yet, It's already the whole mechanism of greenhouse gas tracking and reporting has already started making its way into a couple of contracts. Uh, So it's not mandatory now, but it will be once the rule is finalized. And, you know, companies are going, depending on the type of company and the size uh, of your company, you're going to have to track your greenhouse gas emissions and then, Uh, report on them. And if you're a big enough company, you're going to have to tell the government what your mitigation strategies are going to be for that. But moving beyond that, Eric, that's just kind of the first salvo. We're getting into things like sustainability and sustainability report cards for government contractors. You know, how sustainable are your uh, manufacturing processes? How sustainable are the service practices that you have if you're a service company. EPA is developing a report card for some of the largest government contractors. Whether you're a large contractor or not, the creation of that report card is certainly going to have a major impact on companies and how they approach the market because federal customers are going to want to know how are you doing on the report card, even if you're not one of the ones that appears on the report card. We've seen these rules before, um, and, you know, sometimes they have a little bit more teeth than usual. You know, sometimes companies may think, oh, well, we just maybe need to just wait out for another administration or something like that. But is this something that is definitely here to stay? And this is going to be something that, as you mentioned, contractors are going to have to take into account when doing business with the government? Eric, I think it's here for the foreseeable future. You know, certainly priorities come and go with the different with different administrations 
Uh, I'm not sure that I see this going away just because we might have a, a change in administration down the road. You know, we may not either. And, you know, there are other things that stayed in government procurement, regardless who uh, sat in the White House. You know, category management, for example, started as an Obama administration initiative and kept right on going through the Trump administration and is still with us now in the Biden administration. So this whole role of environmental risk factors and uh, how government contractors work in terms of being environmentally responsible corporate citizens, some element of that I think is always going to be here, whether it is as highly emphasized as it's being now, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Something that does matter when, who's in the White House is uh, when there is a split government and there's often in the last decade or so these debt ceiling showdowns. And what is the latest that you are telling folks and your clients about you know, where things stand at the moment? Eric, I think the good news, to the extent that there is any good news on this front, is that all the parties are starting to talk to each other this week. Uh, we've got a whole group of people that have collected on Monday at the White House uh, to talk about uh, the debt ceiling issue. Hopefully that uh, will start to produce something productive. It's going to take negotiations. The House, after all, did pass a piece of legislation that set out certain parameters for how they viewed a debt ceiling increase moving forward. The Senate's going to have to respond with uh, its own version of it. I think the big thing here is we just don't have a lot of time We have a month, probably a little bit less than a month, before we hit that X date that the Department of Treasury always tells us about. I think the impact on contractors, though, is going to be felt even before we get to the X date. Agencies are going to have to do continuity of operations planning. They're going to have to do that now. That's increasingly going to take mid- and senior-level managers away from doing their, quote, day job, end quote, and they're going to have to do that continuity planning in case their agencies actually do have to partially or totally shut down because they can't pay their employees, you know, which is one of the things that could definitely happen under a a debt default. You know, the government has to be selective about what bills it pays. So we'll have to, to think about that, but I definitely think the contractor should anticipate seeing an impact now, regardless of whether or not we get to an agreement. Last time we had this situation, Eric, with one party controlling the White House and another party controlling the House of Representatives, we got an agreement on the debt ceiling issue on X day. I'm not anticipating that we're going to be a whole lot different this time. It would be great to have an agreement of the day before X day, but that's going to be up to our political leaders. I think, though, that it is good to know that last time around, it really went up to the 11th hour plus. So hold on to your seats. It's going to be a bumpy ride. All right. Larry Allen with Allen Federal. Thank you so much as always. Eric, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. In case you missed any part of this interview or would like to share it with a colleague, you can find it at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's hand. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.